But we're in a sermon series called Back to Work. We've been looking at the situation that the people of Israel faced when they came back to their land. They've been in captivity. They've been in slavery. Um, A couple weeks ago, we started to look at the book of Malachi. We'll continue that today. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Malachi, right before the New Testament. If you get to any book in the New Testament, it's too far. If you get to any other book in the Old Testament, it's too far. It's right there uh, in the middle. I've sketched out the whole story in other sermons, so I'm not going to do the whole story again for you. Um, If you want to uh, listen to that, uh, parkland.org, all of our sermons are up there. Um, Let me give a brief recap, though, of Malachi. Malachi's ministry happened in the mid to late 5th century B.C., and the people of Israel had come back to their land about 100 years before, and God had worked among them miraculously to help them rebuild First temple in Jerusalem, and then the walls of Jerusalem. The city was rebuilt, and their lives were, in many respects, back to normal. But in their return to normalcy, it also brought with it a sense of spiritual lethargy. The people felt that they no longer needed to rely on God, as they had in the past. So they moved away from their responsibilities to him, And we're living a way of life that was antithetical to God's kingdom. And so God sent Malachi into their midst to deliver his message to them, which was to get back on track. Get your life back on track. Malachi had four major concerns that he wanted to deal with. The people had allowed their worship to become worthless. Their relationships were hostile. They opted out of their responsibilities to one another. Their stewardship was lacking, and they had lost their sense of obedience. And today we're going to talk about that third piece, which is stewardship. So let me say a couple of things right off the bat. First of all, um, can I just, is it okay if I ask for just a show of hands? How many of you here have ever heard a sermon about money? How many of you here have ever enjoyed a sermon about money? Okay. That's, uh, that's fair. That's, that's total, that's actually more than I thought. Um, Okay. This sermon involves money, okay? But this sermon is not a lecture. I think too many times when we talk about money in the church, we make this a lecture about you're not giving enough money to the church. And that's when everybody's kind of like, I hate these sermons because all I'm gonna hear is that I'm not giving enough money, okay? That is not anywhere remotely near my intention for this sermon, okay? So everybody, breathe. Okay, I needed to tell you that right off the bat so you weren't waiting for application and going like, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, what? So, okay, so just so you know. All right, we need to talk a little bit about the situation that we're seeing here. Let me read the text for you actually before we do that so we have a, a picture of the whole thing. Uh, Malachi chapter three, starting in verse six. God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. And have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, 
I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fields of your soil, the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's talk about the, the situation that's happening here. What we've seen in Malachi is that uh, his sermons tend to follow this very particular pattern, right? He, he identifies a particular circumstance, a particular situation that the people of Israel were in, and then he issues a command to correct that situation. And then he gives them a motivation piece. He tells them something that's true about himself that should motivate their desire to change. We've seen this in the last couple we've looked at. And that same pattern is here again. Uh, Actually, it's on two different levels. So God paints this, this big picture of this broad situation And then he gives a command, and then he adds the motivation. And that all happens in verse 7. That's like the introductory bit to the next part. And then he drills down from there, and he gives two specific ways that that problem manifests itself. We'll look at one today. In a couple weeks, we'll look at the other one. And that takes up the remainder of the chapter. So the overall issue here, the big issue, the broad issue, is one of obedience. Right at the beginning of the section in in verse 7, God says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God's identifying here a historical pattern. It has always been true of his people. If you read the Old Testament, it has always been true that God's people have trouble following God's commands. This isn't new, but it's present now. And the rest of verse 7, God says, return to me and I will return to you. In other words, the people weren't obeying God's commands, and although this wasn't a new thing, this was something for which they bore responsibility, and their disobedience had made it impossible for God to then bring them blessing. And so if they would take care of their obedience, return to him, then the motivation is that God will return to them. As usual, though, the people are kind of thick a little bit, Um, and maybe a little bit defensive and or cynical. And so they say in verse 7, how shall we return? Oh yeah? How shall we return? So silly. Such a silly thing to say. God's just told them they violated their agreement with him, and their response is basically, yeah, 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 well prove it, huh? So God does, of course. Um, And and starting in verse 8, he goes a level deeper. So this is one particular aspect of disobedience that's happening among the people of Israel. And then we see here the pattern again. Situation, command, motivation again. And then it starts again in verse uh, 13, yes, which we will get to in a couple weeks. So the situation. How shall we return to you? How how do you want us to work on our our obedience, God? What, What does that actually look like? He says, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And then the people again, oh yeah, huh? How are we robbing you, huh? I don't know, maybe they weren't saying it like that, but it sounds better when you say it like that, I think. And so God gets more specific. He says, in your tithes and contributions, your translation might say your tithes and offerings. Okay, so what's going on here? I gotta gotta explain the situation. Um, Actually, in the words of one of the greatest movie characters of all time, Inigo Montoya, um, to explain would take too long, let me sum up. Um, If you're interested in all of the gritty details of all of this and want to fall asleep, read Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in that order um, because it's all in there. So, The nation of Israel, 
were all descendants of a man named Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel. That's where they get it. Each person in Israel born into the covenant community could trace their lineage directly back to Jacob, but more specifically could trace their lineage to one of Jacob's 12 sons. There's a memorable Andrew Lloyd Webber musical about uh, this kind of thing. Um, one of those sons, Joseph, the titular subject of that musical, uh, actually has his, his tribe split into two. So actually there, there's 13 groups called tribes, 13 tribes, each of whom traces their lineage back. So when God established the covenant, he gave the people their land. He made it so that the land was portioned out for uh, all of the tribes, except for one. 13 tribes, 12 pieces of land. And that outlier was the tribe of Levi. The Levites, when you hear that term uh, in the Bible, the descendants of Levi, were given the responsibility to be teachers of the law, to be the religious leaders of Israel. God thought it was important enough that in an agrarian society, he would set aside an entire people group just to focus on, how, on teaching the people how to follow him on doing that. The problem was, now the Levites had no way of supporting themselves. Right? It's an agrarian economy. They're not allowed to be growing crops or tending animals. They've got to tend to the temple. So what do you do? So God established this system that he called the tithe to make sure that the Levites could devote their attention to matters of worship and not have to worry about where their next meal was going to come from. And the word tithe means a tenth part. So during the year, the people would, would set aside their tithe every tenth animal, a tenth of all of their stuff. And once a year, they would bring it to the place where they worshipped. At first, it was a place called the Tent of Meeting, and then it was the Tabernacle, and then it was the Temple. And they would bring it there. But they wouldn't just give it to the Levites and then walk away. Here's my goat, enjoy. That's not what it would happen. Everybody actually ate a meal together. It was like a big potluck. And as Baptists were like, I could get on board with that. It was a big potluck. And whatever was left over, they would give to the Levites. And the Levites would use it to sustain themselves throughout the rest of the year. But the tithe wasn't just for the Levites. It was actually for everybody who, like the Levites, lacked the ability to support themselves. And so every three years then, the tithe was dispensed not by going to the temple, but in your town, in your city, it was dispensed there. The potluck happened there. And the excess stuff was all given to the poor. Now you think giving the poor food every three years probably isn't good enough. You're right. That wasn't the only way that they would support the poor, but that was a really important way of doing it. That's the tithe. In addition to the tithe, the people were also free to set aside an even greater portion as an offering. My translation, the ESV, calls it a contribution. No matter what it's called in your Bible, that's the, the part that's over and above the tithe. The idea here is that if a family has a particularly abundant year, uh, lots of animals are born, really good crop yield, etc., etc., they, you know, they came into possession of something valuable, they could look at each other and they could say, you know, this is way more than we actually need. And so we're going to give this to the Levites too. Because if God is blessing us abundantly, then they too should share in that. Okay, so the tithe is this obligatory 10% portion. And the offering or the contribution was a free will gift over and above that 10%. 
And the primary purpose of the tithe was to support the Levites and other people who had no means of supporting themselves. So the problem that Malachi is addressing here is about the people's failure to support this system. They weren't giving their full tithe. They weren't contributing extra offerings. And that meant that the system itself couldn't function properly. And the Levites and others were being left without a way to support themselves. Okay, but wait a minute here. Malachi doesn't say, God doesn't say through Malachi, you are underfunding the system of social welfare. Right? He doesn't say that. You're underfunding the Levites, and look how hungry they are. Get back to giving them food. That's not what he says. He says, you are robbing God. Okay. That's weird. Right? It's not like the people were stealing from the resources the Levites had, right? Like, it's not like they were in the middle of the night getting dressed all in black and jumping in through a window of the temple and, like, filling a bag with a bunch of grain and maybe some dead animals and leaving out the, right? Like, that's, that's robbery. That's what robbery is. And even if they had been doing that, they would be robbing the Levites. How does that translate into robbing God? It's not like God is using the grain to make bread, you know? Like, how is that exactly true? Well, clearly, there's something else going on here, right? God's issue wasn't that the percentages were wrong. They were wrong. He did have an issue with that, but that wasn't the primary thing. God's issue wasn't that the Levites were being treated unfairly, although they were. God's issue had to do with the fact that the people were trying again to live in a version of reality that was different from the one that existed. And their actions reflected a deeper problem with their hearts. And the solution to that wasn't for the Levites to stand there on contribution day with a clipboard and scales weighing out grain and saying, ah, that's 8.67%. Give me the rest. That's not, that's not the solution, right? The solution is for the people to get back to reality. The people had forgotten this, this foundational principle of life. They believed that they were the owners of their resources, they believed that the land they were in belonged to them. They believed that their money belonged to them. They believed that their crops and their animals and everything else they had belonged to them. They had ownership of these things. And because they believed that, they also believed that they were free to decide autonomously what to do about those resources. That they could allocate those things that they could make those decisions. After all, it was their stuff. They believed that supporting the Levites through their tithe was an act of great generosity on their part, actually. And that the Levites should just be happy that they had any resources at all. That was their version of reality. And it was wrong. The truth was, God was the owner of everything. All of their land, all of their money, all of their resources, everything. God does not, did not and does not transfer ownership of something just because we possess it. 
God doesn't loan it either. God is still the owner. And because this is true, the people were tending God's possessions. He had given them the responsibility to use his resources wisely, and by wisely, I mean in the way that he, God, intended them to be used. The people were stewards of God's resources. That's where the idea of stewardship comes from. Using something that is not yours. And so God's command is very clear, right? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. His call to his people was to acknowledge the reality that he was the owner. That it was all his. That the resources weren't theirs. And that because that was true, they needed to use them in the way that God said to use them. That was the system. And they needed to live within it. So, situation, robbing God. Command, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. So God's going to add now the motivation piece. That true statement about him. Something that's, that's true about him and his character that would motivate the people's response. That would motivate them to obey. And that motivation piece is here in in verses 10 to 12. Just at the end of verse 10. God says, and thereby put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Here's what God's saying. I love you. I am jealous for you. I want to protect you. But your poor stewardship is interfering with my ability to do that. But not just that. It's causing you to carry a heavy burden that isn't yours to carry. Because the people believed that they were the owners of their resources. They also believed that they alone were responsible to safeguard their own prosperity. They were worried that if they gave their full tithe, then maybe they wouldn't have enough. The tithe had become a burden, right? An additional pressure on their resources that they needed to give in order to placate God, in order to make up for something that he was lacking. Okay, God's got to have his part too, and I guess now we've got to factor that in, and that means we won't have enough over here. Inevitably, their tithe meant that they would have fewer resources available to make sure that they could have enough. It was a tough society, right? If something bad happened, that could spell doom for your family. If your animals got sick, man, that's really, really bad. You can understand their fear. 
but at the heart of their fear is something that psychologist Brene Brown calls a culture of scarcity, a mindset of scarcity. And it's this persistent belief that it's just never going to be enough. What if they gave their tithe and then their animals got sick? What if they gave their tithe and then there was a swarm of locusts that destroyed their crop? What if they gave their tithe and all these powerful nations around them looked and said, oh, look at all them giving away all their money. They're weak. Let's go invade them. What if they got taken off to captivity again? What if that happened? It was weighing on them, and the people were carrying this huge burden of responsibility to ensure their own survival because ultimately they were worried that God was not going to do it. Instead of seeing obedience as the way to ensure their future, ensure their prosperity, they saw it as a liability that would compromise their future. And so God says, test me in this. Test me in this. And that's not um, the kind of testing that the Bible elsewhere says, don't test God, right? Um, God says, try it. Try doing it. Try it and see what's going to happen. Try giving your full tithe. See if I won't ensure your prosperity. See if I won't protect your crops. See if I won't guard against your enemies. Because I will. God's call to his people is to abandon this mindset of scarcity that they have. And to live in the reality of his kingdom. They're carrying this huge burden that they don't need to carry. And if they would just choose to trust God with their future, to live in obedience to him, then they would see him pour out blessing until there was no more need. They just had to trust him. And that call, that kingdom call, to trust God to do what he has promised to do is the same one that the Holy Spirit issues to us through this text today. In verse 6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. God is still in the business of protecting his people. God is still in the business of watching over us. God is still in the business of being the king of the universe. And so we as God's people are still in the business of good stewardship. Our responsibility, our call is to see ourselves not as the owners of everything that we possess, but as the caretakers of what God has given to us to tend and that still belongs to him. And we need to make sure that we steward those resources in a way that reflects God's priorities and our trust in him. So what does that look like? That is a huge question. It is an enormous question. And part of the difficulty of preaching on this is that it opens up this, this whole uh, spectrum, this whole horizon for us to talk about stewardship because it touches literally every aspect of your life. There isn't a single decision that you make that is not ultimately a stewardship decision. And I will prove that to you next week. But... It's such a big question, and I want to do justice to it, so we're going to use the rest of this time this morning and all of next week to answer that question. What does good stewardship look like? What does it look like to tend God's resources? Because you know what? We've believed a lot of things that aren't true. 
we believed a lot of things that are sort of this, this received knowledge that we get about stewardship that when you look at the Bible actually aren't really there. Or where the Bible actually says kind of the opposite of what we think it says. So it'll be fun. We'll knock over some sacred cows. There's going to be lots of mooing and all sorts of things like that. The first thing we need to do is we need to disabuse ourselves of, of some really bad theology and some mediocre theology. It's not all really bad. And ironically, the principle of stewardship itself, in my mind, has been poorly stewarded, and so we've not represented it well. If that's going around and around in your mind, don't worry, it'll click in a minute. Um, so the prime example is this. Are you ready? Here comes a cow that's going to fall over, a sacred one. Here's what we say. The people of Israel were obliged to give 10% of their income, of their stuff, of their resources to God as a minimum, and then to give offerings over and above that 10% to God as well. True. Because this is true, every Christian is responsible to give 10% of their income to the church and give free will offerings regularly over and above 10%. That's terrible application of scripture. Ah. Okay, ready? Here comes the sacred cow. It's going to fall over. Ready to hear the distinct sound of mooing. There is no evidence in the Bible to suggest that you have to give 10% of your income to the church. No evidence at all. Get that out of your mind. Breathe deeply. We took our offering already, so no worries. Um, but get that. It's not, it's not true. Moo. Right? That's not actually true. In fact, I'm going to go one step further. Ready? You don't have to give anything to the church. You don't have to. That sound is the leadership team having heart attacks, by the way. So why do you? I don't know, Mark. Why don't you tell me? Sure, I will. Why, why do you? Why do we ask you to give? Because we do. Why do we ask you to give? What does wise stewardship look like with respect to your relationship to the church? What does it look like? So let me, let me give three biggish points here about this that will redirect. First thing to understand is that giving to the church is a choice, not an obligation. The people of Israel had an obligation. They had an obligation under God to give a tenth of their resources because doing so served a specific purpose, right? It was to make sure that the landless Levites could sustain themselves in the midst of this agrarian culture. That is a specific application of the principle of stewardship that suited the cultural context of the day and it does not serve that purpose now. Now, one of the ways that we use the money you give is to pay salaries for people like me. I appreciate that. And you think, we're supporting the Levites. No, actually, you're not. Here's why. I could do something else. I could do something other than be a pastor. I could support myself that way. But the Levites couldn't do that. That was an option that was not open to them. There was no way for them to do anything other than this. Why do I get a salary? I get a salary because 
we have decided that paying a salary to a pastor is a good investment in our mission. We don't have to pay any staff. The Plymouth Brethren, for example, have no paid staff members, no paid clergy, no paid pastors. It's all lay-led. I can make an argument, actually, for paying pastors and not paying pastors from Scripture. I can argue them both just as strongly. So, you know, the thing is that the Holy Spirit's given us the opportunity to choose. We could choose not to pay a pastor, but we've decided that asking someone to do the job and to give salary to them is better because the job is huge and it's enormous and it's not something that I could ever do with volunteer time unless I didn't sleep. Um, so in the interest of fulfilling our mission, a salary is a good investment. But there's more to it than that, right? Because in addition to paying my salary, we pay other people's salaries. We spend money on various other things like keeping up our building, which we have decided to uh, have. We pay bills. We do all sorts of things. We kill mice. We fix air conditioners. We do, what else do we do, Stephen? Let's list some things off. It's just fun. What else do we do? We do all sorts of things. We have decided as a church that in order to accomplish our mission, we want to steward resources in a certain way, in a way that reflects uh, the, the best approach to our mission. And we express this intention in our budget. So, you are not obliged to give money to the church, but if you're part of this church, if, if this is your home, and especially if you're a member of this church who has a, a vote on things like the budget, then you have chosen by adopting it to, to assume that obligation. Right, does that make sense? Like we're not, there's nothing that when you walk in and says, like, you have to give money now. We've chosen together that that's the kind of budget we're going to support. And, and now it is an obligation, but it's an obligation because you've chosen to make it one. And it's an obligation in the greater goal of kingdom transformation. We then have an obligation to spend that money well. I'm going to talk about that more next week. But it's a choice that we've made. And we've made it because it is wise stewardship to do it. And so in the context of the church, do you have to contribute anything to the church? No. But because you've chosen to be part of this church, you have assumed the obligation to support it financially. Okay? And, and that's, that's sort of the way that goes. Okay? Let me, let me move on because I've got to fill this out a little bit. Second thing, wise stewardship with respect to the church is measured in more than just money. We say, you have to give 10% of your income. Well, guess what? Income isn't the only measure. Money is only one of the resources that God has given us to steward. And so saying that wise stewardship involves income makes it extremely one-dimensional. What other resources do you have? Let me give you an example. Time. Your time is a resource. And each of you have chosen this morning to steward that resource in being present here. You made a stewardship decision this morning to come. You are to steward your time overall in a way that reflects the values of God's kingdom and his kingdom priorities. 
And one of those values is the church. God values the church. Because the church is God's chosen vehicle through which he he enacts that kingdom transformation piece. And so if that's true, then wise stewardship means using your time to participate in the mission of the church. Through volunteer ministry, through showing up, through all of those things. Through participating in small groups when we launch them, things like that. That's a good stewardship decision. But, I want to make sure to say, because I think we go too far in the opposite direction sometimes. Wise stewardship of time does not mean I give all of my free time to the church. Right? That's not what it means. (coughs) Wise stewardship of time, instead, reflects God's kingdom priorities. Am I using my time in a way that reflects the priorities of God's kingdom? And so your time, you should also spend your time investing in things like building friendships. Right? Because transformation happens through relationship. We talked about that last week. If that's so, relationships are a great way to steward your time. You should steward your time if you're married working on your marriage because godly marriages honor God and promote the kingdom. You should spend your time, if you have kids, pouring into your kids because godly children move the kingdom forward. You should spend time investing in yourself. Because if you give all of your time to other people and you have nothing left, that's not actually good stewardship. I'm going to develop this in in significantly more detail next week. But the bottom line is this, that stewardship, when it comes to the church, involves more than just money. It involves all of the resources God has given you to use. When we say stewardship means giving the church 10% of your income, we're actually doing you a disservice, we're doing the church a disservice by making it extremely one-dimensional. The third thing is that, third thing is that why stewardship with respect to the church is not measured in dollars and cents, but it's measured by the attitude of our hearts. As I'm talking here, some of you are, are perhaps sitting there going, oh man, now I gotta do more, now I gotta do that. Please, please, please be free of that. It's about what we believe. It's about our intentions. When we peg stewardship, though, to just a percentage of income, we really miss the point. And we end up asking silly questions like, well, is that net or gross, right? Personally, I have just always struggled with the idea that 10% is a hard and fast rule. I've just always struggled with that. I've never liked it. And I've been surprised, actually, at how strongly that idea is defended in some places. In fact, one of the commentaries I was reading uh, in preparation for this sermon, the author said that the majority of churches today still fall under God's indictment that we are robbing him because their budgets are generally nowhere near 10% of the income of their members. Ah, I think we miss it. The problem I've had with this from a pastoral perspective is that I would find it extremely difficult, extremely difficult to say to a single mom who's working two jobs, 
just to put enough food on the table for her kids to look at her and say, well, you know, if you would just get your obedience right and tithe 10% of your income to the church, then God would pour out blessing on you. Really? But that's what we say. When we make it about percentage, that's what we say. The question, how much money am I supposed to give, is fundamentally the wrong question. The question is the attitude of our hearts in our giving. But hey, you know what? Don't just take my word for it. Listen to Jesus. One day Jesus was teaching, and a a very wealthy young man, possibly attractive, uh, the star of a reality TV show, approached Jesus and said, good teacher, what do I have to do to have eternal life? What do I have to do? Jesus lists the commands of of the, the, the covenant. He says, you know, you should keep all of these commands. Keep the law. The guy says, well, I've done those things. I've done those things. So what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Gospel of Mark says, disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. If it was about giving 10%, Jesus would have said to the guy, hey, well, you know, what else do I lack? Well, you lack one thing. Go sell 10% of what you own and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. But guess what? Jesus didn't say that. Why? Because he was after the guy's heart. That guy didn't want to sell everything that he had because he forgot it wasn't his. And that heart attitude would make it impossible for him truly to follow Jesus. On another occasion, Jesus was sitting outside of the temple. And the gospels say that that he was watching people put money in the collection. (laughs) How awkward would that have been? There's Jesus sitting there watching. Oh, yeah, good, good. So lots of people were coming. And they were giving great sums of money, the wealthy, the Pharisees, all of these people. And from elsewhere in the scriptures, you can believe that probably they were making a big deal of it. But then, along came a poor widow who put into the collection box two copper coins, which translated to one sixty-fourth of a day's wage for an average laborer. It's what someone who works for minimum wage makes in 12 and a half minutes. That's not very much. That would make no dent in the overall profit and loss statement of the temple, right? The guys who were picking it up were like, hey, look at all this gold. What's this? It would make no difference. And yet she gave it anyway. And Jesus called his disciples over to him. And he said, Truly I tell you, this woman has put in more than all of the others. Well, that's just not true. She didn't. 
What does Jesus mean? He says, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That wasn't 10%. That was 100%. And yet Jesus said that was a model of good stewardship. Well, wouldn't we expect him to say, she gave way too much, guys. Like, seriously? You don't have to go that far. 10%. Why was she a model of stewardship? Because she refused to fall victim to the culture of scarcity. She believed in the abundance of God's kingdom, even if it meant that she wasn't sure what exactly would happen. She trusted in God's provision. Here's the point. It's not about the percentage. It's not about that. It's about your heart. It's about the attitudes that you have and the convictions you have about the nature of God's kingdom. I should say to you that neither of these examples of the rich man or the poor woman are normative and binding on all of us either because, again, if you think to yourself, well, that means I have to give everything. Wrong question, right? That's not it. What does your heart desire? What does it believe? What do you know to be true? And that's what I want to leave you with today. What do you believe to be true about the nature of God's kingdom? We have a problem in our culture with scarcity. We do. I love you if you sell insurance, but your business is based on this. That's what it's based on. What if? What if this happens and you don't have enough? What if this happens and you don't have enough? So, do you believe that? Have you fallen victim to that? Do you believe, like the people of Israel believe, that, that actually you own your resources? That you can choose what to do with them? Do you believe that because that's true, you are the one who's responsible to safeguard your financial future and your prosperity? Or do you believe that God is actually the owner of all things and that he has just entrusted them to your care? Here's the thing. Many Christians could nod their heads and say, yeah, that, that's what I believe. That's totally what I believe. I believe that God owns everything. But when it comes right down to it, actually, we don't really live like it's true, right? Because it's hard. We agree that God is the owner of all things, yet we fall prey to scarcity. We worry that there's never going to be enough. So here's the question. What would happen if we live differently? What would happen if we lived as though we believed what we say we believe? What would happen? What would change in your life if you understood that God is the great king? The great king who loves his people deeply, who wants to protect them, who is saying to you, put down that burden you carry. You don't have to carry it. What would happen if we believed that? Now, I'm not saying you come back next week and you say, well, Mark, I, I, I quit my job, I cashed out my RSPs, I sold everything I have, let's talk about stewardship, okay? Don't take any action this week, maybe, but that, that's, that's not honoring God either, right? That's not good stewardship either. This is first, if we're going to get anywhere with stewardship, this is about understanding the shackles that we put around our own wrists. These shackles that constrain our ability to trust God fully, to be generous, to wisely steward his resources because we believe that maybe he won't come through this time. 
God will always come through, and that's the truth. And he has come through in Jesus. Jesus is God's example. If he has given us Jesus, if he through Jesus has paid the greatest debt that we owed, if he could look even at his own son and say, I don't possess you. If he, out of the riches of his mercy, could supply our greatest need, how will he not also supply our other needs? Can we stop carrying the burden? Can we stop carrying it long enough to, to let God be king? Can we put down that load that we carry? Can we believe that God in his mercy will never leave us or forsake us? Because you know what? That's the kind of God worth serving. That's the kind of dad worth honoring. That's the kind of king whose resources are worth stewarding for the glory of the name of Jesus and the furtherance of the gospel. And that's the call that we have on our lives. And so God, we commit to you the hearts that beat in our chests. And some of them are beating quickly because we have understood our responsibility. Some of them are beating quickly because you're convicting, Holy Spirit, you're coming and you're moving and you're convicting and, and you're showing us those areas in our lives where we have fallen victim to this belief that maybe somehow it's not going to be enough. That maybe you won't protect us. That maybe you won't guard us. And so God, this morning, we as your people, we want to put this in front of you. And we want you to examine the attitude of our hearts. We want you to look at who we are and what we truly believe. We want you to interrogate every piece of our mind that we reserve, that we don't give to you. We want you to cleanse and restore it. We want you to give the mercy of Jesus to us through your Holy Spirit that we would understand that we are forgiven, that our debt is paid. That the things that are true about you in the Bible, the things that you say about yourself are truths that do not change. And so we believe, God, that you are the great king, that you are the protector, that you are the one who is worthy of honor and glory and praise, that everything we have is yours. That there's not a thing that we possess that is ours because of our merit, but that everything is a gift from you. And God, as we pray, as we, as we pray, as we sing, as we talk, as we have conversations about these things, God, I pray that you will be working in our lives. That you will be bringing about change. God, that, that we here, each of us individually, and us together as a corporate body of believers called Parkland Fellowship, that we would be shown to be good stewards of all that you've given. Break the shackles, God, of scarcity. 
and of the fear that it won't be enough. And let us walk with courage, with conviction, with strength, giving everything we have to you, knowing that you are the great king. And we give you all of the glory and honor that your name deserves. In the great and strong name of Jesus, amen.